How's it going, everybody? It is 11.45 on Friday, July the 19th, and it's time for another trip down the homeward path. This is the show by me. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, a father of three, and I work a 42-plus-hour-a-week job in a factory that leaves me exhausted and mentally and physically every week. But somehow, someway, we still try to make magic work at a competitive level, and my definition of competitive is often different than other people's. So this is the show for all of you like me who are, who don't have the time, don't have the money, but want to play the game anyway. <laughs> so this week while we were away, uh, I made some, some purchases that I, I intend to share as far, as far as why I got them and what I'm looking to do with them. And there was some minor, drama on the job site this week that I feel compelled to share after making a vague Twitter post about it, but everything's going to be okay. Like I'm not losing my job. I'm not like desperate for whatever. And, but you know, it's, it's something I wanted to share. And while I'm at it, I need to share with you how awesome my sponsor is at inkgaming.com. You can check them out save 10% off your order and share your playing space with a bunch of other people. And while you're at it, you can share my love of the content over at constructedcriticism.com. It's great. Share it with other people too, after you listen to it. And then if you feel like you are getting enough out of what I'm giving to you that you want to help me continue doing it, feel free to share your donations with me at patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg. Show's always going to be free, but if you feel like I'm I'm doing something you want to support, I will not turn it down and I will make sure it goes to good use. So while we were away, the, the first thing I want to talk about, because this is a, a magic podcast and I want, once I get the person, the weird personal stuff out of the way, I want to be able to get back to magic and stay on magic. Uh, we've had several good people leave my job in the last couple of weeks, like a lot, a lot in the last month, even, uh, Nick left to find him to move into a, to an awesome living arrangement and a better job in a different city. Um, Lance left for another job. My friend Lance, that's another one of my magic playing friends. He's left to find potentially a better job for himself. Uh, you know, my, uh, we've, we've had some good employees get fired for seemingly frivolous reasons. And then the person who was doing Nick's job after he left had some very pressing personal issues come up and she had to leave. And that left me doing her job because there's a grand total of two people out of the 70 employees that know how to do it. And I'm the only one that knows how to do all of it. I'm not good at it, but I know how. <laughs> And that left me kind of, kind of scared because our company tends to like to do things the easiest way possible. And the ones that leave the easiest transitionary period. And that had me worried that they were just going to try to stick me back there again and hope for the best. And the job that I normally do now is I run one of the production lines, which means I set up the machines, get everything running. And then the rest of the time I get to help the employees improve. I get to work with my, I get to work with my workers and, help them learn how to do their jobs better, more efficiently. And so it doesn't wear them out. And I love doing that compared to sitting back in a corner, measuring out ingredients for batches. So 
you know, one of them, I get to see the fruits of my labor in front of my eyes as I see the light bulb go on and I see people improve right in front of my eyes. And the other one is the lines run the next day. That's my payoff for doing what I've got to do is I get another stack of sheets the next day. Like I hate that. And maybe it's selfish, but I just, I really didn't want to end up stuck back in that job. So I panicked a little bit, put some applications in. I was worried I was going to have to find a new job. Thankfully, uh, I had a, a really good conversation with our plant manager. We are not going to be leaving me back there. I'm going to get to go back to my home before long. And, you know, all is right with the world. But in my panic, I put in an application and they actually called me back for the first time in like five years. I've put in plenty of applications over those five, those five, six years that I've been working where I am, but I've never had them. I've never had a callback in all that time. So I'm going to go to the interview. We're going to see what happens. I, I'm not expecting anything to come of it because it's a different kind of culture of a factory that I applied to. And there's, there's things I like about it, namely the location and the pay. But there's things that I consider much more important at the place that I'm at now, which is the entire corporate structure being in the building with me, the fact that I can go upstairs, knock on the president's door, and just have a conversation with him about my job if I feel I need to, and the fact that like, I ended up having to stay late on Wednesday. Uh, I'd gotten myself behind. There was a lot to do. I had to make sure I got it all done. I didn't want to come in uh, Thursday to a really full slate and be there till like nine o'clock. So I stayed a little bit on Wednesday and my plant manager, not only like found out that I was still there, uh, didn't, didn't throw a fit or anything, but he had to leave. So he said, because he didn't come back and help me finish, he didn't come back and, you know, get his hands dirty, get in there with me and get it done. That lunch was on him on Thursday. I don't know of any other place I've ever worked where somebody would have done that, especially the, like the actual plant manager, the one in charge of all these other people out here on the floor. That doesn't usually happen. So that's going to be a hard culture to leave. They've also been very good with uh, working with me and my family. If I need a day off, like I ended up getting a, a perfect attendance incentive day, even though I had to leave absolutely no notice because Abel got sick back in February they still gave me an incentive day because I've been there every other day that didn't involve that illness. Like I there's, there's things there, there's finances and location are great. Like the other jobs a little closer, it pays a little better, but I don't know that that's going to be enough to offset the value of being able to take care of my family the way that I have the last six years. So it like, Going to this interview is going to be a case of them trying to sell me on the job, the culture, the people, you know, it's not going to be about the money. It's not going to be about the location. If it was just about money and location, I'd already left. There's, there's other things that are more important to me. So off the, off the weird personal stuff onto more, uh, magical oriented stuff. Sorry, detour. We're, we're, we're back to it. Um, I made an order. Uh, I, I shared last week that I got the, the trade credit from ABU. Um, uh, 
I was going to try to put it to some good use, get some good standard staples or some, you know, stockpile as much of it as I could, but get what I needed from M20. And I did. Uh, the only thing I was regretting not being able to get was um, Nightpack Ambusher. Simic Flash looks like a deck I could play until it rotates. Like, that seems like so much fun. But they just didn't have any. So, and... What I ended up getting is I got uh, Brineborn Cutthroat, Chandra Acolyte of Flame, which I could do an entire episode about how good I think Chandra Acolyte of Flame is. I'm, I'm not going to do that today, but I could. Uh, Chandra is for Blue-Red Wizards. She's good in like a team or mid-range shell alongside uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist or... Uh, Risen, like she's really good in team or mid range alongside Risen Reef because you just get two Reef triggers a turn. It's really powerful. Um, and then I picked up some good sideboard cards like Fry, got my Risen Reefs, got my Spectral Sailors, got the rest of my Frilled Mystics that I somehow didn't have, uh, got my Command the Dread Hordes that I somehow didn't have, and then got uh, Nissa Who Shakes the World. And all totaled, I spent 96 shipping and all out of the 455 that I had banked up. So still sitting on about 355, a little bit more than uh, close to 360 for uh, Throne of Eldraine. I don't intend to buy any more cards until October. So <laughs> we're still in really good shape. Uh, but I, I got all the I got the cards I needed made sure I got them like Chandra. I wanted to get as quickly as possible because I have a feeling she is going to jump in a hurry. Once, once we figure out how good she is like casting light up the stage out of your graveyard for nothing. It's pretty powerful. Uh, you know, in the, in the, is it wizards deck, which is something I'm probably going to play off and on until rotation. Uh, Casting your charter course out of the graveyard after combat for free seems really good. Uh, she's also like medium to really good. And is it Phoenix because of the same thing, the ability to cast your card draw spell out of your graveyard for no mana to help get the ball rolling is really powerful. If not, you know, casting a burn spell to remove a threat as your first spell, then you card draw, then you card draw again. Like that still gets you there. The card is just really potentially powerful, and then there's stuff to do in modern with Arcanist and cards like Ancestral Vision and Crashing Footfalls. So, like, there's I just love the card. It's so good. And then all the other things, like Nissa, I wanted because um, mid-range green-red X is on my mind. She's really good, and I already have Sarkins. And Command the Dreadhorde I needed for the blue-black Terramander shell that I'm already playing but it's also just a good card to have on the other side of the rotation because it's still probably the most powerful thing you can do for six mana. Except maybe Flood of Tears right now because of Omniscience. But on the whole, like, I got everything I needed. We're, we're set up for the rest of the summer and into the fall. So I feel like we're in a good spot. All of that out of the way, let's dive into our main topic this week, which is... Uh, uh, I. I Alluded to in the Riding in Cars with Cards episode this week, we did episode seven on uh, blue-white open the vaults control. Technically, it was Esper, but like the black was a very small splash off of Miss Vane Border Post and I think a couple of Creeping Tar Pits. 
to support uh, the black casting cost on Architects of Will some amount of the time and the black casting cost on Sphinx of the Steel Wind out of the board some amount of the time. But what what the deck did that was so special and the thing that gave me the idea for the for the episode, like I wanted to do the Open the Vaults deck as attack on writing and cards since I started that series. But it's got to tie in in some way, shape, or form. So I wanted to find what it was that made that deck so special. And it was the idea that it did the same thing as the regular blue-white control deck in standard at the time, which was a tap-out control deck because counter magic was awful thanks to the combination of Jund and just not having good counter spells in standard. Uh, instead, we just played cards like Day of Judgment and Martial Coup and then a bunch of Planeswalkers and card draw spells, and then we just buried our opponent in the mid-game to late game. You would reset the board, jam a Planeswalker, and then start to turn the corner. That's that's what the blue-white control deck did. It was very much interested in, like, if there had been a non-creature-oriented deck in that format, it would have flourished like crazy. But we didn't get Primeval Titan until the very end of Zendikar's time in Standard, so, like, the Valakut deck was not very good at the time. It was, you know, a collection of ramp spells and colony gem, and it was not nearly as good as what it became once we got Primeval Titan. By contrast, like, the, the Open the Vaults deck did the same thing the Blue-White deck did. We wanted to keep the board clear, and then we wanted to turn the corner in a hurry. But our card draw and the way we turned the corner in a hurry were different. So we were doing the same thing they were. We were just doing it in a different way. And that's kind of the first place I want to start is in card advantage, doing card advantage in different ways. Because historically speaking, the two most prevalent ways of doing card advantage are to draw more cards than the card you spent. Like, you know, Charter Course is a really good card advantage spell because if you're attacking, it draws two cards. Or, you know, Winged Words, if you're playing Flying Creatures, it just draws two for one card. Two for one, plus one, that's good. Um, Mind Rot is another classic historical example. It's like the divinations and Mind Rots of the world. Either spend one card to draw two or spend one card to take two away from my opponent. That's the, the historic example of card advantage. But there's other ways to do it. In the case of this, in the case of this deck, we were playing the long-term card advantage game. We were cycling creatures early in the game, with the idea being we'd get to six mana and would just get all of them back. And sometimes our opponent would help us by casting a blightning, and we'd get to discard two more artifact creatures, and then open the vaults would get them all back. You got paid off for playing these creatures by getting them all back at once later in the game. You would you would be card advantage neutral through most of the early game with the exception of, you know, the odd courier's capsule activation or the turn that you finally played your Day of Judgment or Martial Coup to catch up. And then once you resolved your open the vaults, it was just such a massive swing in card advantage all at once that it just didn't matter. Everything that had happened to that point didn't matter anymore. Your life total would stabilize thanks to Filigree Angel, and then you would go up like six or seven cards in one shot. That's huge. 
Like that's unreasonably huge of a swing in card economy. So, and it's, it's not unprecedented to do a tap out control deck that wants that kind of effect late in the game. The, the inspiration was both the blue white control deck that was already present in that standard. And it was five color cruel control from the standard previous year because Cruel Ultimatum and Open the Vault share a lot in common. They're both massive swings in card economy that help stabilize your life total and help pay you off for just trading cards with your opponent earlier in the game. You know, Open the Vaults was often a six or seven for one. You would get all your creatures back out of the graveyard. Your, your life total would reset thanks to Filigree Angel and you would have a, a dominating board presence with which to turn the corner like your tap out deck wants to. Cruel Ultimatum did a lot of the same things. You would discard three cards out of their hands, so you're spending, it's a plus three. They sacrifice a creature, okay, plus four. I draw three cards, okay, plus five, plus, plus seven. Okay, and then I raise dead, so it's plus eight for seven mana. It's just a massive swing in card economy, and then the rest of the deck... Like Esper Charm was a little two for one, but most of the rest of the deck was just a lot of one for one exchanges and then threats to turn the corner with. So we were doing the same thing, just in a different way. I, I can't stress that enough. Like the, the blue white deck at the time was playing Mindspring to operate in the same function. If, it, if you cast Mindspring for five, you know, Mindspring for four at six mana was a plus four. You would spend one card or you would uh, plus three. You'd spend one card to draw four at six mana. The blue white open the vaults deck was spending six mana to go plus like six or seven. If we go up to seven mana, mind spring always is a plus five. Cruel ultimatum was always a plus eight. <laughs> like there's the, the advantage gained was pretty significant. Moving into a different a different alley, another deck that we built along the same lines during that standard was a Soulstare Expedition deck that uh, Gavin Varhey dubbed Up Down Draw New, and it was particularly appealing to me because it was cheap. I didn't have to buy any of the expensive cards. I was slowly working my way into Jund at the time, but I was just a little bit too far away from a good mana base, so I needed something I could play that could compete with John so that I could work my way into John later. And this deck gave me a way to fight that battle. John was a card advantage machine. Thanks to cards like Maelstrom Pulse being able to take out multiple permanents, uh, Blightning being a mind rot that also bolted you for three Bloodbraid elf being at least a two for one, you know, either putting two threats on the board or, you know, Casting a Lightning Bolt or Terminator Maelstrom Pulse to trade a card off the top of your library that you didn't have to spend any mana for and get a 3-2 haste. And then, you know, the dreaded scenario of Bloodbraid into Blightning that was actually just a 3-for-1. So, you know, Jund was really good at grifting card advantage. And then they had, you know, Siege Gang Commander... Garuk Wildspeaker and Broodmate Dragon at the top of the curve to be functional two-for-ones all the time. Well, Up Down Dranu was designed to be kind of the inverse of Jund. Instead of its card advantage being in the form of 
taking cards away from your opponent. It was the idea of buying them back after your opponent took them away from you. The engine of Solstair Expedition and Grim Discovery alongside uh, Fetchlands, which I was fortunate to open a couple and then aggressively traded into the rest of them. Alongside, but Grim Discovery alongside Fetchlands and Cycling Creatures was the inspiration for the deck. Soulstar Expedition being able to rebuy two Cycling Creatures that your opponent ripped out of your hand with Blightning. You know, you would often decide what you were discarding to Blightning based on which effect you were going to use on the other side of it. They spend one card, a you know, they spend either one card to get the Bloodbraid Elf and the Blightning at once. Or a lot of times they just hard cast the Blightning on three against a slower deck. They spend one card to take two of mine, and then I turn around and spend one card to get those two back. So we're both functionally spent one card. Because they took them away and I got them back. So we stayed card advantage neutral. And then we would play that game of me attempting my best to stay card advantage neutral keeping the board fairly simple, keeping it streamlined, making it easy to, to stay up on the on cards until we got to a point where I would resolve a Sphinx of Lost Truths to draw three or I would resolve a Mindspring to draw three or four. And looking back on it now, the Open the Vaults deck would have been a much a far superior option at the same time because all the cards that made it good were there Except maybe, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm going to have to look now. I can't remember when Open the Vaults actually released. If it released before M11, I'm going to be really sad that I never played it sooner. Uh, but the idea being, stay card advantage neutral and then get a big swing in card advantage later in the game. And then a lot of their threats couldn't attack through Sphinx of Jwar Isle, who was a 5-5 flying shroud. Like, it could block a half of a Broodmate Dragon twice. You'd take four, but then it would kill the rest of the Broodmate Dragon. Uh, Siege Gang Commander, like, it didn't matter how many Goblin Siege Gang Commander had. It wasn't attacking into it. And you just chump, you just eat all the 3-3 three, three Beast Tokens from Garruk all day. And then it blocks everything else their deck makes. So, like, it was a really good six-drop threat to just slam on the battlefield at a reasonable life total and stabilize. But it's another case of doing the same thing that people wanted their control decks to do, but in a different way. Instead of trying to play cards like divination and, Oh man, I'm sad. Now we did have open the vaults. It was an M 10 magic 2010. I could have played the Open the Vaults deck sooner. I'm sorry. Um, anyway. Uh, instead of playing cards like Divination and a bunch like Board Wipes and stuff like that to catch up, we just stayed card advantage neutral because that's what the games were about. Those were the games Jund was winning against control decks at the time. Games where they could get up on cards by just ripping them out of your hand and then trading one of their cards for multiples of yours. And, you know, we were comfortable playing cards like Essence Scatter and Negate before they had been adopted by the community because it was a deck where you could avoid some of the pitfalls of that by 
having the cycling creatures to rip through your deck and find other outs to the point that we were playing a, a an essence scatter variant that was more mana because sometimes it was a two for one. You could trade uh, three mana and your soul manipulation for their creature spell, either their guru, either their uh, siege gang or their broodmate dragon. You could trade three mana and your soul manipulation for those and then buy back a cycling creature, which you would then cycle to draw more cards. <laughs> like it was so good. In specifically the John matchup, it was really bad against the aggro decks, which is why it never really caught on. But it was another case of doing the card, playing the card advantage game, but doing it in a different way. We weren't interested in drawing cards necessarily. The cycling creatures were to rip through our deck, make sure we hit land drops, and then find the handful of powerful cards we were playing. And then the rest of the deck was an engine to keep us card advantage neutral against a deck that was aggressively seeking to make us minus. And that also takes me into the idea of turning the corner as another thing that we can do, but do different than other decks in the past. Mid-range decks are really good at, at getting a little bit ahead and then starting to just kind of, they, they get a little bit ahead on the board, they dominate the board state for a couple of turns, and then they just slam their foot on the gas and kill you with that advantage. They leverage that advantage as quickly as possible. Tamer Energy was really good at it. You know, Jund during that standard format from 2010 was really good at it. Uh, the Siege Rhino decks were stupid good at it. Well, what do we have right now for, for turning the corner? Turning the corner being you you the battlefield is kind of mucked up. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. But then you do something that puts you in a massive, puts you in an advantage, and then you leverage that advantage immediately into starting to pressure your opponent. There's a couple of things we've got in the standard format right now that exemplify that. Command the Dreadhorde, the card, and the strategy is a really good example of that. To the point that I'm playing it in my otherwise blue-black tap-out control deck. Uh, it's the blue-black Terramander that I also covered on Riding in Cars with Cards in a previous episode, uh, updated with the M20 cards, and it is so much fun to play. Uh, if, if we, if we really, really want to see it, I can, uh, do it. I can put the list out there for everybody to check out, but, uh, command the dread horde is really, really powerful. And like in this deck, it, it's a tap out control deck, but it has that little bit of element of mid range to it because we have a lot of removal, a little bit of card draw, mainly card selection, and then what we want to do is get a little bit ahead and then just kill our opponent while we're ahead. So like it's, it's part mid range, part tap out control deck because against the aggro decks, we play like a tap out control deck and against control, we almost play like a mid range deck. We just go like threat, answer, threat, answer, threat, 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 kill you. And command the dread horde is a really good answer for a lot of what control decks are going to try to throw at us. Cards like Teferi time raveler, you know, Terramander will plink one of those down real quick. Uh, Noxious Grasp, I think, is the name of the card. The, the destroy target creature or planeswalker if it's white or green. Plays nicely into the Command the Dreadhorde plan because I can blow up your planeswalker and then I can take it later in the game to jam it down your throat. Like, 
the idea being like traditionally in this type of shell, you would not want an effect like that because it would potentially hurt your life total. But because there's another strategy employing the same card, it's super powerful because you can just use their deck to kill them. <laughs> another really good example of turning the corner right now in standard is playing Sarkin the Masterless in your, your Planeswalker decks. Because Sarkin is not a particularly great card against like other aggressive strategies, other, other board dominant strategies. He's not very good there because he goes all the way down to two loyalty to make a four, four that your opponent can kill or take or, you know, attack through. But where Sarkin shines is when you're playing against more reactive strategies and you go like uh Teferi time raveler into Narset or Sahili or Chandra if your mana base is, you know, miraculous and just draws perfect every game. And then you just jam the Sarkin down on turn five and you attack for eight. Now your opponent's dead on board and they have to kill three planeswalkers or at least one to not die. That's turning the corner. You put your opponent under a massive amount of pressure, even though your deck otherwise doesn't do it very well. Sometimes you can, you can accomplish the feat with, a deck that maybe doesn't necessarily do it all the time. You know, the, the, the teamer elementals deck is really good at getting a massive advantage and then leveraging it, just snapping off, leveraging that on the spot, uh, going into Omnath out of nowhere for, you know, a bunch of damage upstairs, risen reef triggers. You've got a board presence. Your opponents on the, on the way down. Um, oh, what was the other deck? What's the other? I mean, Saltai Dreadhorde. I, I, I shouldn't even have to talk about how good Saltai Dreadhorde is. But even, even Flood of Tears in the Simic, the straight Simic or Teamer builds, Flood of Tears is so good at turning the corner. Because you play this weird little interactive game for a while, and even if you're not doing anything unfair with it, you can still just Flood of Tears, bounce all your stuff, plop a reef down on the table or plop a Nissa down onto an empty board. Nissa plus empty board equals dead opponent in a couple of turns. Cause they got a lot of work to do to catch back up now. <laughs> and you can still like, you know, Nissa turns a land into a, into a uh, token. What kind of token is that by the way? Isn't it an uh, elemental, which means Omnath counts it which means it deals one more damage, which then helps you turn the corner faster because you can clear blockers and keep attacking. Right. Okay. Just making sure we were on the same page. Um, and that also applies to decks in modern. You wouldn't necessarily think it does, but it, it really does. Um, Arclight Phoenix is really good at turning the corner. Um, what else have I seen? What else have I seen in modern that does that? really, really well, kind of out of nowhere. <sighs> anyway, moving from turning the corner, let's talk about applying pressure to your opponent because there's a lot of different ways to do that. Applying pressure to your opponent doesn't have to do necessarily with what aggro decks alone have done forever, right? You don't have to go 
Creature, 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 attack, 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 attack. That's not the only way to pressure somebody. Historically speaking, it's one of the most successful and one of the ones that's always revisited every time cards enter or leave a format. It's kind of a litmus test for finding out how well-constructed your opponent's decks are is to just jam a really efficient deck full of fast, fast, aggressive creatures into them and see how they do. But sometimes there's other ways to do it. Sometimes the format evolves to a place where you have to do it a different way. One of the best historical examples of pressuring your opponent along multiple axes at once is fairies. I played during that standard format, and while there were times that the deck felt like a pure control deck, if you ever sat down to play against it with a pure control deck, you knew better. Because they could also just get draws where there were like turn one thought seize, turn two spell stutter, turn three, or you know, turn one thought seize, turn two bitter blossom, turn three, leave up spell stutter scion of Una. Flash in the scion at the end of your turn. I've got six I've got four power ready to attack, about to be six. My turn, okay, draw. Attack, leave up, cryptic command, miss by and click. So you've got six, about to be eight power on the board. You can potentially champion one of the fairy tokens or the, the spell starter sprite to make your miss by and click, which will then get huge, you know, because it'll also tap your opponent's lands down. Your opponent's under pressure. They have to act, but they can't because you're playing all this on their turn. The deck was so good at pressuring your opponent when they get when that was the approach they needed to take. You know, Bitter Blossom threatened both the taxed both their cards and their uh their life total because it would make tokens that would attack really effectively because they flew, and Scion of Una would make them bigger, or you know, Mistbind Click might just come down and eat one of them. But then we also had the benefit of just making an, an army of creatures that would then force your opponent to interact with that. Like eventually they had to deal with the bitter blossom, but then all the other cards around it made that difficult. So your opponent was just always under pressure if they were trying to be overly reactive. And that was why control decks got squeezed out of the format at the time. They just weren't as good at being a control deck as fairies was like Fairies was a little bit worse against mono red ex exclusively, but it like completely invalidated mid range and completely invalidated traditional Drago control because they could do what you were doing, but better because they could also kill you while they were doing what you were doing. An, a more modern day example of that, like the Delver decks are really good at applying pressure, both when they were in standard the, early, the days in modern when they had access to cards like Treasure Cruise, the deck was just actually busted. And then even uh, Popper, Delver. You're really good at applying pressure because your opponent knows after a couple of untapped steps that they're never killing that thing. Like If I get to untap with that thing twice, this game is over. That's a big deal. That puts your opponent into frantic mode. They have to find something. They have to do something or that thing's going to kill them in, you know, a handful of turns. But, you know, in the, the blue white Delver deck from Innistrad standard, you had cards like Moreland haunt that could turn a dead Delver into another creature. 
You had Snapcaster Mages. You had Rune Chanter's Pike. You had all these cards that made your creatures better. And would then, you know, Geist of Saint Traft was just a singularly powerful creature. I mean, what else is there to say? Delver decks are really good at pressuring the opponent because you get on the board quickly and then you force your opponent to act. But once you get to untap a couple of times, you're going to make that hard on them too. And coming even closer to more modern day, we have decks like Grack, uh, Grack, Black Green Constrictor. Learn how to speak English, fat man. Um, Black Green Constrictor was a really good example of a deck that pressured your opponent in a bunch of different ways. First and foremost, you had the primary game plan. You could get natural turn four, turn five draws out of Black Green Constrictor. It was not uncommon. <coughs> turn two, Constrictor. Turn three, Rishkarpima Renegade. Turn four, Verterous Gearhulk. Your opponent's dead on turn five. If they can't clear your board. Like, you've got a fast draw that just kills your opponent. At the same time... You were also playing cards like Lintsleaf, Siphoner, and Tireless Tracker that could pressure your opponent's card advantage resource as well. Uh, with an active Constrictor, Siphoner was a better Dark Confidant because it just drew you a card every single turn and only ever cost you one life. And then with, uh, with Tireless Tracker, it turned getting flooded out into something you wanted to do. Because you'd play your land, get a, get a clue, crack your clue, draw another card... Make the tracker bigger. If you had the constrictor, you'd make it too bigger. Like, and then it applies pressure to their life total at the same time. The siphoner was hard to block and apply pressure to their life total, especially if it got a counter from something like a Rishkar or a Gearhawk. It was just a really well-designed deck for showcasing the, the philosophy of pressuring life and cards at the same time. And it was one that I played probably way too much. Teamer Energy was really good at that too. Like it was obviously really good at, you know, grifting card advantage off of, you know, Whirler Virtuoso, Rogue Refiner, Glorybringer, uh, Torrential Gear Hulk out of the sideboard, like all of that stuff. But you were also really good at pressuring your opponent's life total because you had, again, you had draws that would just put your opponent way behind on life total. A tune with Aether into Long Tusk Cub into Rogue Refiner is one of the most unfair draws I've ever I've ever played with in a deck. Even without any other nonsense going on. A turn one a tune with Aether into turn two Long Tusk Cub. You had two energy with which to save it from a magma sprayer shock. That was step one. Then you'd attack with it. You you'd play the rogue refiner on turn three, draw a card, attack with your cub. Well, now you got four energy, so even if your opponent has Lightning bolt or, you know, lightning strike or um, whatever other three damage spell they were playing. It didn't matter because you could just pump two counters onto it before the spell hit it. You know, a braid was hugely popular at the time. A braid didn't kill your long tusk cub if you went a tune cub rogue refiner. Because you just pumped two counters into it. Like, it was so good. The fact that you had access to what was essentially a two-mana 5-5 five five in your mid-range deck. 
And then like everything, like your one and two drops set up that, that line of play, the ability to put a lot of pressure on your opponent's life total, but then your three drops for your three, four and five drops were all value creatures. So they would pressure your opponent's card advantage. You know, rogue refiner draws a card and then gives you something to do with two energy, whatever you're doing with two energy. If you're splashing the, the black, it was even dumber because you could turn that two energy into an actual other card with siphoner. Um, Warlord Virtuoso gave you three energy and the ability that if your opponent had a removal spell, you could trade that three energy that the siphoner gave, make another body and keep applying pressure to their life total or the ability to jump block bristling Hydra. If you had any energy stockpiled already four mana, big creature going to threaten your life total, but it also invalidates at least one removal spell in your hand. So like you're gonna have to spend two cards to kill this thing, and then Glorybringer was Glorybringer. Like it was a, a very fitting card to have won a Pro Tour off of a top deck. It's just so powerful. Even if it never kills anything, it's just really good at pressuring life total, and it has the ability to trade for more than a card. And then today, Saltage Redhorde's really good at this. Mono Blue Tempo is really good at this. Pressuring your opponent's life total with a fast, aggressive draw while also threatening to go up on cards on them. You can pressure them in more than one way. The same goes for combo decks, like more combo-oriented decks. It's possible... The, the, com the evolution of combo decks over the history of Magic is nothing short of fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The first combo deck I ever played is going to sound really familiar because what it did, it did two things. It wanted to ramp a bunch of mana into play and untap its lands to utilize that mana in an unfair way, get a whole heaping ton of mana to use. And then it wanted to fire off a giant X spell that would kill its opponent. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. We have one of those in standard right now. It's not necessarily great where Heartbeat Harvest absolutely was. But Teamer Reclamation, if you swip, if you switch which deck was in which format, like if you magically can like play today's list of Teamer Reclamation with the lands that they've got in that format, like transfer transfer no other cards to any other decks in that format. Teamer Reclamation is a much better deck in that format than Heartbeat Harvest is in our today's standard. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, back then, Heartbeat Harvest, they didn't have to worry about a ton of counter magic. They're, the control decks were more interested in trumping what the creature decks were doing. They were playing cards like Kega the Tide Star and Tidings and, you know, debtor's knell and they wanted to just tap out for big powerful card effects big splashy powerful card effects where the control decks in today's standard are not interested in tapping out ever if they don't have to but more more than that it's the evolution of the combo deck because you can build teamer reclamation as a linear 
ramp up a bunch of mana, untap a bunch of times with a couple of wilderness reclamations and kill them. You can build it as that kind of combo deck as a redundant, like layer upon layer of redundancy combo deck. A lot of card selection. Let's let's get a bunch of lands out of our deck. Like the, the gates version is a really good example of this, you know, circuitous route linking arms with, uh, with growth spiral linking arms with, um, arboreal grazer and you just plop a bunch of lands into play jam a couple of reclamations on turn four turn turn three turn four resolve a couple of ramp spells and then on turn five turn six your opponent dies because you get enough lands into play untap twice kill your opponent with explosion same kind of thing you were doing in heartbeat harvest you can do the same thing but the way the 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 best versions of teamer reclamation tend to win in standard is instead of trying to be a linear combo deck, they have the threat of the linear combo draw where you just, you know, you draw multiple growth spirals, get a bunch of lands into play, everything comes together perfectly and they die. You can do that. You know, killing your opponent on turn six is still a viable thing that can happen. But it's also a really powerful control deck independent of the combo. You have um, your your card draw that you want to use to try to find everything. Well, that's also good at playing the control game. Chemistry's Insight's really good at playing the control game. Opt is really good at helping you play the control game, making sure you hit land drops, making sure you draw the right cards to interact. You know, Shock being able to clear creatures in creature matchups while also simultaneously finishing off a Teferi Time Raveler so you can combo off. Both of these things are equally important. Having access to a card like Niv-Mizzet or Nissa in your otherwise ramp, you know, combo deck. Nissa's really good here because Nissa helps you need fewer lands. It's almost like a Heartbeat of Spring, but it's also a threat that kills your opponent on its own because you can just get a bunch of lands out. Like, make a bunch of lands into 3-3s three and beat your opponent down. And notably, you can attack with them, use them for mana, and then untap them with Wilderness Reclamation, which is just downright silly. Like, there's so many ways that this deck can interact and play Magic compared to Heartbeat Harvest, which was downright idiot-proof to pilot. Clearly, because I played it in my first, like, three months of playing competitive Magic and was pretty good with it. Like, I wasn't going to beat somebody who'd been playing it for months on end, but I got pretty good with that deck. I was, I was, I would have put myself up against anyone at the local level and probably anyone at the state level at the time. And I was, like, 17 and bad at Magic, but I was really good at playing that deck. So another, another good example of doing the combo deck thing a different way. Four-color copycat. You look back at other turn four combo decks that have ever existed in standard. Storm combo decks, even. You, you know, Dragonstorm was a turn four combo deck. It didn't do anything other than be a turn four combo deck. You look at, you know... Heartbeat Harvest was a turn five combo deck. It didn't do anything but be a turn five combo deck. 
Splinter Twin, when it first came out, uh, when, when Deceiver XR got printed, it was a turn four, turn five combo control deck. You would control the game for like four or five turns. Inquisition of Kozilek like would clear path, you know, use removal to make sure the board was fairly safe. End step, Exarch, untap twin, kill you. Like, you had the threat of this infinite combo, and then alongside it was like a medium competent control deck. That's what I was accustomed to. Uh, to where if you forced the twin deck into being a pure control deck, like if you just took the combo out from under them, they were awful. Well, that's what it was when I left playing Magic. When I came back, it was a completely different animal. Blue-Red Splinter Twin was this actual control deck that just had the combo in it. So, you know, that was that was where I wanted to start when Felidar Guardian got released accidentally with the text that it had. Well, when that happened, I built Jeskai Sahili, and I had a fair amount of success with it. It was a tap-out control deck in the mold of the blue-white deck from back in the day. But instead of playing a six drop like open the vaults, I was playing a six drop like kill you on the spot. And then we were playing Torrential Gear Hulk and Combustible Gear Hulk, which I'm less than proud of, but it was pretty good. Well, ultimately, this deck got overshadowed by what was eventually the best way to play Sailey, or the best way to play Copycat. And that was the mid-range version because it was teamer energy. You got to do all the things that teamer energy did minus long tusk cup, but that's what the Sahili Felidar car, uh, the Sahili Felidar combo took over for. You didn't play long tusk cup, but you played everything else that teamer energy played. You played the whirlers, you played the rogue refiners, you played the, the tunes, you played the, uh, like you're, you're turning the corner cards, all got cut. You weren't playing Hydras. You weren't playing Glorybringers, and you weren't playing uh, Long Toast Cub. Instead, you were playing a turn four combo that you could just draw into and kill them. So you know your your best draw was turn three Sahili, turn four Felidar. You don't have it, kill you. But then you also had the ability to play this kind of medium mid range deck with you know. Harness Lightnings and Whirler Virtuosos and Rogue Refiners, and you could sideboard into Glorybringer. I guess you didn't get Glorybringer, but you could sideboard into uh, Bristling Hydras. Like, there was a lot to like about what the deck was capable of. And most notably, it was that both halves of the combo, Sahili and Velidar Guardian, were also good cards as part of the core archetype, which was this value-oriented mid-range deck. So, like, that brought me back to Tamer Reclamation when I was thinking about it. And your Wilderness Reclamation helps you play the control game better because it untaps your lands. It functionally gives you an extra turn. Well, Expansion Explosion is also just a good control card, even if it's not the even if it's not just outright killing them. Because if you explosion to kill a creature and draw three cards, that's a plus four. You spent one card to get four. If you have Niv-Mizzet on the board, it's even dumber than that. 
Like, it's just so good at what it does. It really, really is. And that was that was the belief that, you know, that's what led me to think if if Tamer Reclamation could be like isolated unto itself and put into the same format that Heartbeat Harvest thrived in, Tamer Reclamation would have been far and away the best deck. Like if you could have made the Heartbeat deck into a reasonable control deck with the combo as part of it, the way that Tamer Reclamation is, like Heartbeat Harvest was good, it would have been great. So that's the benefit of doing what these other decks are doing, but doing it in a different way. You know, you can gain advantages that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. It would have been really easy to do, you know, Teamer Reclamation as this really fast, aggressive combo deck and where you play like the expansion explosion kill with Wilderness Reclamation. And then you also just jam Ral Storm Conduit into it so that you can sometimes just draw the four card combination of Ral plus anything targetable by expansion and then just double expansion infinitely until your opponent dies. Like that's a thing you can do. That's a turn five combo deck. For those of you doing the math, it's Ral on four and then you opt expansion, expansion, kill you. <laughs> it's a thing you can do. I'm not saying it's great, but it's a thing you can do. You, know, you could, you could play it, play a, a fun of a uh, finale of devastation and be able to execute the Narumeha combo where you just loop infinitely with Narumeha and keep copying a spell until your opponent dies. But instead of doing all of that, we're playing a control deck that just happens to have this combo finish to it. And because of that, the deck is better, not worse. So at the end of the day, always, always, always keep an eye out for something you can do that's going to be a little bit off the beaten path, that's going to be a little bit different. But it's going to give you the same end result from a macro perspective as something else other people are doing. You know, Command the Dreadhorde in Sultai Midrange. It was originally a, a, a sin, a cardinal sin, to cut down from less than four Hydroid Crisis until they figured out that Command the Dreadhorde was better than Hydroid Crisis in that deck. Because you could get back all your Explore dudes gain a bunch of life, have a dominating board presence, and then just immediately turn that into killing your opponent. You don't get that with just playing four Hydroid Crisis. So maybe that's something we can remember for later. I don't know. Uh, but that's going to wrap it up for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Again, always remember, sometimes it's okay if it looks different, but it's doing what you need to do, probably not wrong. Or at least it's it's less wrong than the internet would have you believe. So, with all that out of the way, it's time to talk about how you can find me, how you can interact with the show. I'm on Twitter at, at HomewardPathMTG. I'm on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. I'm on uh, Facebook group for the show, Homeward Pathfinders. It is open invite. Just send a request. We'll see what's going on. And then if you want to join the fun week in and week out, you can, you can give me my favorite thing every week. Hashtag MTG dad jokes. 
Because I love a pun. Did I do that one last week? Yeah, I did. Okay. Uh, I love a good pun, and I love magic. So putting the two of these things together is just like chef's kiss. Mwah, beautiful. Uh, first one is from at Blair Witch Green or Benny Wright's Commander. It says, I want to call these Elvish Proclaimers. The card is Elvish Reclaimer from M20. It says, I want to call these Elvish Proclaimers. I will search 500 lands and I will search 500 more. Just to be the elf who finds a thousand lands and throws them on the floor. I don't know. So these fellows are going to do work. That's amazing. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Anybody that is listening that works with me knows I love doing topical song parodies, just kind of improvised on the spot. So most of them are not fit to be shared on this show, though. <laughs> and we have one from at Punt and Scoop, uh, Chris Farrell. Says, what did the Simic Biomancer get when she crossed an alga, alga with the fungus? Says, I don't know, but she sure is liking it. <laughs> I dig it. And then a couple of y'all still forget to throw the S on the end, so I got to find it. Uh, did I do that one last week? Yeah, I did. Okay. Last but not least, from Brian Canada. Let's see. <laughs> wow, we had a lot of fun with that. Regarding the the cat on uh, MTG Arena, the pet that people are getting, that some of them are uh, spamming the cat in order to cause the game to crash so they don't lose. Uh, it, it's a whole thread that started with Saffron Olive saying it seems weird to ban people on arena for clicking the cat without any warning, especially since the main purpose of the cat is to be clicked. Uh, says we're adding a fix to keep players from spam clicking the cat on the 25th. In the meantime, our support team is taking action against players who are clearly abusing the function. So the fix will be great. An announcement would be nice, you know, back and forth, a lot of stuff. Somebody says, meow, that seems a tad excessive. It says, people won't be accidentally banned. Only around 50 people were suspended. Those that were suspended had clicked the cat over a thousand times, 150 plus times per minute through the entire match. This was over multiple matches. It says, meow, that seems a tad excessive. <laughs> Anybody who's ever seen Super Troopers knows why that's hilarious. And uh, MTG Arena says, you know, we're not kitten around. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas, whatever for next week, let me know. Hit me up. I'll talk, or at least I'll try to. And we'll catch you next time.